<clears throat> My name is Taylor Bruce. I am the Director of Student Ministries here at the church, and I'm really glad that you came to join us tonight, whether you're here or online. This week, we have been looking at um, the last week of Jesus' life on earth through the eyes of John's gospel. Uh, we looked at um, the triumphal entry this past Sunday. Last night, Charles looked at um, and led us through the, the, the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. And tonight, we get to discuss all this stuff that we have read. And so tonight, you'll notice in your worship folder, there's no text there. That's because we're going we're gonna to hit all the stuff that we've already read. And we're going to see it kind of in a different light. But before we do that, I want to um, tell you a story from my childhood because it's highly applicable to this. When I was about eight years old, um, I was in the garage, and we were kind of cleaning it out. Um, and I found my parents' old tennis rackets and a tennis ball. And so I thought to myself, it would be really fun to hit this tennis ball against the back wall of the garage. And so I began to do that. I kind of tossed it up, hit it, tossed it up, hit it. Super fun. Occupied me for a little bit. Well, my dad was in the house, and he could hear me hitting the tennis ball against the back wall of our garage. And he knew something that I was, in my eight-year-old mind, not recognizing, and that there was a storm door with a glass window right next to the wall that I was hitting the tennis ball against. And so he came out and very gently and graciously said, you should probably stop doing that. You might break that window. To which I replied, no, I won't. Look how accurate I am. I just found this tennis racket and a tennis ball, so I'm clearly really good at what I'm doing. <laughs> and so he went back inside, and I kept hitting the tennis ball against the back wall, and then all of a sudden, the unmistakable crash of broken glass just permeated throughout the garage in my house. And my dad came back out into the garage, and there I was standing all alone with a tennis racket in my hand and a ball-shaped hole in the storm door window. Very clearly, nobody else was at fault. It was me. And I was guilty. All the evidence pointed to me, and now I owned a debt that I couldn't pay because I was eight years old, and there's no way I could afford to replace a window. Someone would have to pay for it, either to fix it or to live with a window that was broken and non-functional. Now, my dad, being a good dad, forgave me. He made me pay him $10, and I'm sure that was not the cost of the window. But what if I didn't ask for his forgiveness? If I just lived on in my obstinacy? Or what if my dad's forgiveness didn't last beyond that day, if he came back the next day and took it away from me? Or if he'd held that mistake over my head for all of my life? What would become of our relationship after that? On the very night of Jesus' arrest and trial, what we've spent our evening so far reading through and watching, I want you to imagine with me another trial taking place in heaven. And in this one, the charge is a conspiracy to commit murder. And the defendants in this trial are the very ones who we have watched prosecute Jesus this night. And of course, standing in for the prosecution is Satan himself. And so on this night, he calls all these defendants to bear witness to their crimes. First up is Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, his friend, 
who has walked with him for three years, who has overcome countless suffering and trial with him, and all of a sudden at the very end just decided, I can't do it anymore. So he betrays his friend. Or how about the high priests and the officers, Jesus' own people, those who knew the scriptures better than anybody, those who had access to the scriptures like nobody else could, and yet they didn't recognize the Son of God standing before them. And so they falsely accuse him out of their own doubts and their own fears. Or how about Peter and those other disciples who were close to him? who were in the garden with him praying when his accusers came to arrest him. And then when asked if they knew him, they denied him. And they abandoned him. Or how about Pilate? The Roman official charged with keeping peace and justice, the Pax Romana, and instead unjustly murders, sentences a man to murder out of his own cowardice. And how about the, tor- the soldiers torturing and exploiting Jesus in his humiliation? He's weak and beaten down and all they can think to do is make fun of him, steal his things, and hurt him. And then John the disciple who wrote the gospel we're reading, and these women who had followed him faithfully all these years, who had supported Jesus in his ministry, the last ones left in their silence, in their fear, they abandoned him until Jesus was left all alone to die. All of these All of these co-conspirators in Jesus' murder were cowards. Judas sold Jesus for silver. The high priest got someone else to kill Jesus for them because they couldn't muster up the courage to do the thing that they knew they, they wanted to do. And Pilate could have stopped all of this. He had the authority to. But out of fear of a riot, he shifted blame. And then every single disciple stayed quiet, denied him during the trial, and abandoned him. All cowards conspiring to unjustly commit murder in order to save their own lives, their own livelihood, and their own positions of power and influence. And the evidence all pointed to them. They were guilty as charged. The murder weapons were in their mouths and in their hands, and they all owned a debt they could not pay save with their own lives. But now look with me over at the defendant's table. Where these co-conspirators should be sitting, and instead it's Jesus who is sitting there. He's the victim of their crimes, and he is sitting in defense of these who have gathered on earth to murder him. And Satan, that prosecutor, asks him, do you really want to defend these people? And Jesus at every moment of every event of this evening, and indeed for his entire life walking on the earth, replied with a resounding yes. Look at his actions through this, all of these scenes. In the garden, he prays and submits to the Father. 
And then right as he's being arrested, he rebukes one of his friends for trying to violently overthrow things. He heals one of the men who came to capture him. He submits to those falsely accusing him. He advocates for his own disciples and said, you should let them go and only arrest me. He does not refute any of the charges leveled against him. He willingly submits to the Roman authorities. And then he carries his own cross up that hill. And then he hung on the cross. But not just his actions, listen to his words. In Luke, we read him praying. He's thinking about the pain and the suffering he's about to endure. And not just the physical pain and suffering, but the spiritual pain of, for the first time in his entire existence, being separated from the Father, the one he has shared unity and peace with for all of eternity. And he's about to be cut off and completely abandoned and alone. The only soul in the entire created order that is alone, utterly alone. And he prays, Lord, could you let this cup pass from me? Not my will, but yours. And then, when Peter is trying to incite a riot, Jesus stops him, and as he's healing this officer's servant, he makes this statement. He says, don't you know that I could call down legions of angels? Meaning, don't you know what I have at my, dis at my disposal? I have the most powerful army you could ever imagine, and if at any moment I wanted to, I could call them down. I don't need you to cut this guy's ear off. And then as he's hanging on the cross, looking over this entire scene and thinking back on everything that has happened to him up to this point, he utters these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At every moment that Satan parades another of his conspirators up to the stand in front of him and asks Jesus if he is willing to defend them, Jesus says yes. And that yes carries for all of eternity as long as Jesus stayed on that cross until he died. And so too for us, because we are all of these conspirators. Every wrong thing we've done, and every wrong thing that we've conspired together to do, put an innocent man to his death, put him on that cross. But he willingly let us do it so that he could buy our forgiveness from the judge to pay the debt. Some of you are here tonight or online and you're thinking that you don't really need Jesus' forgiveness. I mean, after all, you haven't murdered anyone. But even your little sins put him on the cross and you can't pay that debt on your own, save with your own life. Understand that God's baseline expectation is perfection. And you can't do enough good to make up for any little wrong thing that you have done. All your little sins defile God's perfection. And the only way to make up for your defilement, for my defilement, for our defilement, is for something or someone else pure to be willingly defiled on our behalf and in our place. And Jesus 
on that cross looks down at us and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Some of you think your sin is too big for Jesus' forgiveness. Surely he can save others. But if you really knew what I'd done, those nights sitting in front of images on your computer that you don't want the person sitting next to you to know you looked at, the ways that you have emotionally and physically abused kids, coworkers, friends, or that abortion you had in college, or mistreating others because of their skin color, their social status, their economic standing, their political affiliation, or your own jealousy. Surely Jesus can save other people, but he can't save me. And Jesus on that cross looks down at you and says, I'm not surprised by anything that you've ever done or will do. Jesus saw your sins as he hung on that cross. He knew and still knows. He says, you think I'm not big enough to forgive your sins? I'm the God of the universe. And he looks down on you and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But this is the Good Friday service. So I'm guessing that most of you already know that you have sin and that your sin is not too big for Jesus to forgive. This is a central press, after all. Instead, there are those here who think that they need to prove that they've earned Jesus' forgiveness to prove that he didn't make a mistake in sacrificing himself for you. And my guess is that's usually because you've professed faith and yet you still sin. Your theology is on point. You're probably double-checking mine for heresy right now. You know the difference between expiation and propitiation. You've probably joined every single Bible study that Central has to offer. You've gone on every mission trip. You've served in the nursery and children's church on the same day. (laughs) You know all the things that you do not know, not just in your head, but in your life experience, that this forgiveness that Jesus bought on the cross lasts forever. That you don't have to earn it. And you don't have to prove that Jesus didn't make a mistake. Jesus looks down on you and says, of course you don't deserve my forgiveness, but I willingly give my life so that you can have it. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At any moment in his life and at any moment of that night, as he was betrayed, falsely accused, denied, treated unjustly, tortured, exploited, abandoned, and left all alone, he could have called down legions of angels and wiped out every one of us who have conspired to his murder. He could have said, you know what, Father, never mind. They're not worth it. Wipe them out. But where would that have left our relationship with God, our Father? More than Jesus wanted to maintain his unity with his Father, the very thing that was most precious to him He wanted to win ours. Jesus says, not my will, but yours alone. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
So does Jesus' forgiveness last? It does. Trust it to last. Trust that you need Jesus' forgiveness. You do, even your little sins. Trust that your sin is not too great for Jesus' forgiveness. And trust that you could never do enough to prove that Jesus didn't make a mistake. At every moment of your life, Satan parades your sins to stand witness in front of Jesus and asks if he is willing to defend you. And throughout his entire life, and especially with every event of this night, Jesus says, yes. And that yes carries for all of eternity as long as he stayed on that cross until he died. Pray with me. Jesus, we can't do anything but stand in awe of you. We may try to do other things. We may try to hold up our good works. We may try to hold up our accomplishments or our title, money in our bank account, any number of things, and it pales in comparison to you. Jesus, tonight, we are confronted with our sin and how ugly it is. And I pray that wherever we are at tonight, that you would meet us and comfort us, that you would remind us that you forgive us and that your forgiveness lasts. Jesus, hold our hearts. Amen.